I'm Michael Hasted, and welcome to Arts Talk Radio, which brings you interviews, news and reviews relating to all aspects of the arts in Holland, which are either in English or where language is no problem. We concentrate on events in Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and everything in between or nearby. Talk Radio Online. Features on the arts in English. Two very contrasting pieces this week. We talk to a Polish composer who lives in The Hague about her music and also about a radio play she's written. But first, we talk to our old friend, Amsterdam-based American comedian Greg Shapiro. Stand-up comedy and all the performing arts have been very badly hit by the corona pandemic, but Greg has not been idle and has produced a new book called The American Netherlander. I met up with him at the Diligentia Theatre in The Hague to find out more. Right. Well, uh, you know, the subtitle is 25 Years of Expat Tales. So it was the 25 years of uh, expat tales. And uh, I wrote a, a previous book in 2013 called How to Be Orange, story of my uh, assimilation out of American culture into a different culture. And um, uh, in 2016, I wrote a book uh, which was How to Be Dutch, The Quiz, all the questions I think should be on the Dutch citizenship exam. And in this book, I have combined uh, the best of that, uh, those two texts, and I've added some more uh, details of uh, yeah, the, my first 25 years. So uh, a little background. Uh, what actually brought you to the Netherlands and why did you stay? Right. Well, in a nutshell, came for work, stayed for love. But uh, I came in 1994 to join a theater company called Boom Chicago uh, for just one summer. That was the plan. And yeah, 25 years later, uh, still here. So as I say in the book, fair warning, uh, the Dutch culture can be addictive. And did you find it difficult to adapt? Because I, uh, to adapt, because I think the Dutch and the Americans are really quite different. The society is quite different. I think the everything, the mental attitude, the approach to life is different. Was it difficult or easy to adjust? Uh, that is such a good question. Uh, I can answer on several levels, you know. And in a way, yeah, uh, it seems that uh, the, the cultures are somewhat similar, actually. Uh, the English is uh, quite, you know, well-spoken in the Netherlands. I think uh, Dutch, sorry, English as a second language uh, uh, is, is, you know, Dutch English proficiency is higher than anywhere else outside the United States. Because, because there's also this aspect that a lot of um, America, especially New York, was actually Dutch. I mean, Peter yeah. Stuyvesant was, and I think you, you, you say in the book that a lot of the, um, the names in, in Manhattan or New York are actually Dutch. Uh, which is great, yeah. And that was handy for me because I, I grew up in Chicago, and that's the Midwest. So for a lot of people, that's flyover country. But uh, it's, uh, quote-unquote, Midwest nice uh, that there's just... Uh, a lot of how are you, have a nice day, and people kind of mean it. Uh, but as it happens, just before I made the jump to Amsterdam, I was living in New York. And that is the closest you can get to Dutch culture uh, in the United States. So uh, that was handy. And uh, yeah, people were a bit more direct <laughs> and not so quote unquote nice. So. So let's take us through the book a little bit. What does it deal with? Is it, as you say, there's the, there's the quiz. Um, there's, it's part biography, yeah. part tips. 
Yeah. And a lot of jokes. Uh, there are other books, you know, on the shelf that uh, cover Dutch culture, uh, the Undutchables being the grand inspiration. And um, I ended up being mad uh, at the authors of the Undutchables just because uh, as I understand, they did not stay. <laughs> I think they bounced back. And then, of course, there's, you know, stuff Dutch people like uh, by a friend of mine, Colleen. And I thought, can we just have uh, an, an, an addition to that bookshelf that is more first-person-centric uh, and autobiographical? So, indeed, that's um, the inspiration for this book. And I've uh, got so many personal stories that are uh, applicable to, I think, the basics of, first of all, uh, moving, you know, from the country where you grew up, uh, embracing a new country, a new culture, and the Dutch culture specifically. Uh, but yeah, uh, the book starts off with uh, a couple of chapters on how different life was in the Netherlands 25 years ago, uh, the origins of Boom Chicago Theater, and uh, some of the famous names that came out of Boom Chicago Theater, like Seth Meyers, uh, Ike Barinholtz, uh, uh, Jason Sudeikis, Jordan Peele, who won an Oscar. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's a fun little romp, and I enjoyed writing that for this book. So, in a nutshell, if you could, what do you think is the main difference between the Dutch and the Americans, or in fact, um, the English, if, if, you, if you could make that comparison? Right. Uh, yeah, no, Dutch culture is, um, it, it is, to me, it's also kind of based on paradox, you know, that uh, Dutch meetings, first of all, can start out so much like, you know, American meetings, business first, let's just get to business. But then in the Netherlands, all these decisions uh, have to respect everyone's uh, autonomy and everyone has to have their own say and their own opinion about everything and yet all decisions should be unanimous if possible and it's all very sort of you know collective uh, decision making it's amazing that anything gets done um, but you know also in terms of paradox there's uh, the idea of, of uh, Dutch culture being you know, uh, very tolerant, but also judgmental as hell. <laughs> Doesn't mean anything goes here. You're supposed to just do normal, just act normal. Uh, but that also means, uh, you know, uh, don't have so, yeah, many, uh, uh, it don't put on airs, you know, don't go about bragging. Then there's this Dutch sort of uh, bragging detector that will, you know, kick in and, <laughs> kick the legs out right from under you. I think that's, that's the big difference, that the, the, the Dutch are never flash. They're never showy. The women, the girls wear very little makeup. I mean, the pretty girl riding around uh, on a bicycle with her hair blowing in it, it would never happen in England. I don't know about America. <laughs> but they seem to be totally lacking any sort of um, ego or anything like that. Uh, I think it's uh, been mentioned at one of these uh, uh, sort of forums on Dutch identity that uh, on the chauvinism index, uh, the Dutch culture ranks the lowest in all of Europe. Uh, there it seems to be a built-in... There's something unique about you know the Netherlands that uh, we're sort of allergic to bragging or taking too much credit. Uh, that's why I have said that you know as an American I have no problem <laughs> with being loud and proud even when it's totally unjustified. So uh, part of the book is also just listing off so many of these Dutch innovations, Dutch um, uh, 
uh, uh, you know, you can go around any apartment in the world and point to all these things that have some connection to the Netherlands or, or Dutch in origin, and people had just have no idea because, you know, in the Netherlands, we're allergic to taking credit. I think that's, that's common to most cultures. I mean, every culture, I mean, like the French would swear blind, the word weekend is French, for example. Right. You adopt things without knowing them. If you had a friend from the state saying, um, I'd like to come and live in, in the Netherlands, and, and you'd say, yeah, that's a good idea because... Because right now, uh, at least there's some attempt <laughs> at uh, preventing uh, the spread of a virus uh, in the U.S. It's a bit different right now. In fact, I have friends. Uh, there's a friend of mine from high school who was living in Los Angeles. He uh, came to the Netherlands uh, with a work visa. There's a TV project he's working on. Um, and now he's looking on extending his visa uh, because he's not looking forward to going back to the United States right now. Anyway, but... Um, but things can only get better. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we hope. We hope, yeah. But uh, no, uh, moving to the Netherlands uh, is, is, is... I would recommend that to someone from the United States because um, so many aspects of American culture that I grew up with, even in just civics class, uh, you know, the, the government... Uh, and the society, uh, you know, what I was taught to think about America actually exists sort of, there are better examples of that in the Netherlands, uh, a sort of commitment to uh, individual liberties and um, there is a social safety net, you know, uh, that uh, lets people, you know, well, it, when you go back to America, you realize it's very expensive uh, to be American. It's very expensive to be poor. Uh, in the Netherlands, you don't have to worry so much about things like health insurance. And, uh, you know, uh, I've heard friends of mine as well who say, I can't believe how safe I feel, uh, even in Amsterdam. And walking home late at night, you know, in the United States, uh, you'd have to certainly spend money on a taxi or call a friend to make sure you're accompanied. Um, but in the Netherlands, uh, in Amsterdam even, uh, yeah, it uh, feels like, sure, there are weirdos and uh, people who might want to cause trouble, but, you know, they kind of uh, stick to their, stick to themselves. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not such a danger, dangerous uh, place. I like that. Uh, and if there was one thing you would say watch out for or that you didn't like here, what would that be? Uh, I think Dutch directness, that a lot of people from where I grew up in, in Chicago, in the Midwest of the United States, not prepared for uh, the Dutch honesty. And when combined with Dutch courage or alcohol, it can be just devastating. Uh, yeah, I'm just telling it like it is. I just call it like I see it. I'm just being honest. But uh, yeah, this is at the expense of oh, tact or uh, any kind of subtlety or human dignity. <laughs> so. But I think, I think the contrast possibly between the Dutch and the English, as far as that's concerned, is greater because the English have to think, would you mind terribly doing that? And right. I think the, the Americans are sort of somewhere in between with directness. I think that is correct. So, uh, and, and in, your, in your book, what would be maybe your favorite little story or favorite little anagram? Uh, not an anecdote, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe an anagram, if there's a Dutch anagram. <laughs> Uh, I do quite like the photos uh, at the back of the book, and uh, once we get through the you know first-person stories, and then we get into some of the quiz questions, uh, the photos at the back are just real photos that I have taken, uh, one by my publisher, uh, and 
just right around the corner from uh, the theater here in The Hague on the Denneweg. There is a uh, family-owned uh, clothing boutique owned by the family Black, and it's called Black uh, Boutique. Um, they opened up a side branch called Black for kids. But the arrangement of the words on the sign uh, basically says Black Kids for. And then when they have a sale, the sign says Black Kids for sale, sale, sale. Um, I, I think this has been brought to their attention, uh, but the sign is uh, still the same. And uh, yeah, that's but that's one of the big uh, controversies in Holland at the moment, mm. especially this time of year, the Schwarze Piet. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, I I've been writing about Schwarze Piet and Sinterklaas uh, for years and years now. So, so who is Schwarze Piet? Well, first of all, uh, the Dutch Santa Claus is Sinterklaas, and uh, instead of coming on Jesus's birthday, ostensibly uh, the twenty fifth. Uh, the name day of St. Nicholas is the 5th, uh, 6th of December. So uh, the evening uh, of the, uh, you know, the, the name day, I think, is the 5th of December. Big holiday here. Basically, uh, that's when the kids get their gifts. Um, so in America, we would have Santa Claus with his uh, helpers, elves in the, from the North Pole in the Netherlands. Uh, it is not elves, but, you know, as an American, I would call it an army of black helpers uh, helping the one white man on the big white horse. <laughs> There's really only one association that we have as Americans. But these are, but these are really sort of Al Jolson blacked up anybody, really, aren't they? You know, when I first came here in the 1990s, yes, it was straight up blackface. Uh, and uh, if you would say anything about it, then, you know, my then girlfriend uh, pointed out, oh, well, that's just you being American. Uh, in, Amer you know, in the Netherlands, we never owned slaves. Uh, yeah, we just exported all of that, you know, to... And provide the boat. To yeah, when the we, when we yeah, sold them uh, to the United States. But um, anyway, yeah, pretty soon with Boom Chicago, we started having African-American performers and comedians coming over, and they uh, gave a different perspective. Uh, and, and, and indeed, the perspective of so many um, you know, people who are uh, with you know, dark skin color, uh, people of color, uh, it's that perspective and that, uh, that voice uh, that has grown over the years and uh, to the point that, yeah, uh, now it really has evolved, uh, and the tradition has evolved uh, continually. Since but, but this year, they've rather been saved by the bell because all these uh, yeah. street festivities, festivities have been cancelled because of the, the problem. Because of corona, yeah, indeed. Uh, and yet, also, Black Lives Matter has been happening this year. Uh, Do you think it will survive? Uh, well, I think it will survive. I hope that the tradition of Sparta Peace uh, will survive uh, with maybe not so much the black face. Now the uh, black face has changed to soot or root, uh, root peats. And that is, seems to be the new tradition. Uh, and it seems like uh, that has solved the problem. I, I try to make a distinction between the existence of Svartopit and the appearance of Svartopit. And if we can compromise, like so much uh, Dutch culture is, uh, uh, you know, has done successfully, then I think, yeah, we can keep the Svartopit uh, tradition. Okay, well, on that note, we'll end. I've been talking to Greg Shapiro about his new book, which is called The American Netherlander. And... I think you're also here at the Diligentia when in January? Uh, the 8th of January with the show called Leaving Trump Land. Okay, thanks very much for that. Arts Talk Radio Online.
folks, if you're looking for a great, great publication, Arts Talk Magazine. They talk about the arts, and it is so great, bigly. It's the only news that is not fake. was an extract from a piece called Sunspot by Polish composer Kasia Gliwiska. I'm with Kasia now at the Art Tech Studios in The Hague. Hello. Hello. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your work? How would you describe it? I'm a composer who was trained classically, who ventured into uh, other genres as well. I believe that there is only one music. Therefore, I'm using all kinds of uh, genres in my uh, work. Um, I concentrate on vocal works, um, stage and opera works, as well as, as film. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's basically, or a lot of the ingredient is ele- electronic. I, the piece I listen to, there's a lot of piano and there's a lot of electronics. That is right. Um, I find electronic a very relevant instrument for nowadays. So, And I find that I can connect with uh, the audience uh, using this element better. That's why I'm using it. And, and when you perform these pieces on stage, uh, there's a, as often as not a pianist, uh, and the electronics, are they done on stage or is that just a, a click track? So ideally, I perform it with the pianist and myself on stage. Um, and so it's done uh, in a way that I either record her while she's playing or I have things prepared. So there are some things that are prepared, but I do not like to work with in a way in a, with a click track. I find click track uh, very um, uh, mechanic. So I that's why I, I am on stage when I perform because I am reacting to whatever is happening on stage with my computer. So when ideally in a situation that we have all the ingredients, meaning that we have the sound, another sound engineer in the back, um, then I perform it on stage. It always fascinates me where composers get their inspiration. Do you sit down in the morning with a piece of blank paper and say, what shall I do now? Or are you constantly taking notes when you hear something? Well, inspiration is a, it's a, it's a great concept that I actually explored in one of, uh, well, I actually wrote um, a PhD on how to combine inspiration and uh, deterministic um, uh, elements uh, such as algorithms in uh, composition. So inspiration for me is um, uh, something that comes um, either from listening uh, or experiencing it. And it, it doesn't have to be a sound, but it can be an idea that creates a sound inside of me. So um, to answer your question, do I sit in front of the paper? Sometimes I do, but sometimes I'm taking a shower and that's when it comes. You're now living in The Hague. What brought you here? I studied, uh, I came to, to, to study with uh, Louis Andresen, a renowned um, classical composer. And that was already quite a while ago because it was in 2001. And, uh, that initially brought me here. I have met my future husband here and um, I started family here. So um, in a way, life 
uh, brought me here as well. I also have a network of friends and professional contacts. I did uh, go uh, briefly to UK for four years. I did my PhD in UK. Uh, so um, then I decided to come back to this uh, place because I think that Netherlands is quite a fruitful uh, space for artists. Mm. And um, since I had my contacts and family here, um, I stayed here. But I do feel European. Being born in Poland, I studied in uh, Holland and UK, also in France. And those all experiences I find very European. However, I have European, um, I have non-European husband. My husband is American. I have two kids who are both European and American. So, um, well, um, I feel like I'm uh, the person from the world. Mm, I'm afraid we, we British are going to feel rather out of it next month. <laughs> but I think Holland is an incredible place for progressive art of any sort. Uh, there are several very progressive opera companies here, and I think you work, you work with opera. Have you written for full-length operas? Yes, I did. Um, I uh, worked briefly, well, for 10 years, I worked uh, in Brussels, and that's uh, where, uh, in the conservatorium. Uh, um, and that's where I uh, met uh, some other uh, collaborators, and I started actually an organization called uh, the Airport Society. It's a production house uh, that we run with my colleague, who is, uh, happens to be also Polish, um, Christian Wada, who lives in Antwerp. And we produce operas. Um, we I have written now a uh, third full uh, skull opera. Yep. Wow, have these been recorded or performed yes. and or both? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Performed and recorded. And now I am in the talks. Um, we are planning production of two next ones. Uh, because of the pandemic, it will be a little bit stretched, our planning, but we hope to have a premiere in 2021, um, in the end of 2021, with Asko Schoenberg Ensemble, and then the, another one uh, in 2023 uh, with the uh, Opera Rara Festival in Krakow. And it's not only music, because I think you've also written a play. Is that, that a first? That is the first play, but perhaps not the first text. Um, when I was um, choosing my studies, I was a little bit on the crossroads whether to go in the literary way or music way. Um, I have written some short stories in Polish before, but in English this was my first uh, full text, actually. So I'm, I'm really happy to come back to this medium as well. And this is a play for radio, which um, we'll be broadcasting on Arts Talk Radio in a, in, in a week or two. Um, so give us the outline of the story, not the, the story, but how it came about. How it came about. Um, the story, uh, I met uh, Miriam van Rijsen, who is the actual um, protagonist of this play and person, the real person be be behind the play. Uh, although there are, of course, two real people here. Uh, I met her because I invited her to take part in a seminar, which was organized by Artex Studios. It was a seminar about the life and the work of Alan Turing. And she, uh, Miriam van Rijsen, is a professor of uh, computing for society in Tilburg University and uh, Leiden University. And um, um, immediately we struck a chord that her depth of experience and knowledge um, on the topic of how computers and computing influences life of people uh, was fascinating for me. We started to talk, we started to meet also in Brussels because she has her office next to the European Union headquarters. She has an organization, a nonprofit which works uh, with the topics of um, how technology influences um, the life, especially in Africa. And she has given me, uh, she, she 
she was actually invited by me to uh, see one of my works. Um, this was the opera Unknown, I Live, I Live With You, an opera based on clandestine writing of Afghani women. And these kinds of uh, relevant topics have been in the focus of my work since uh, quite a while. Um, I, I find a special inspiration from the um, the same uh, from what is happening now and how um, artists can be relevant for the people today uh, from what is um, from from the news and from the works of uh, real and sometimes um, missed uh, groups of people. So uh, the organization that I work for, the, the Airport Society, our organization is actually busy with this kinds of topics, um, society and um, and uh, and the underrepresented groups, and Miriam came to me with this uh, fascinating um, record of her more than 500 pages of WhatsApp messages between her and a refugee, um, and 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 she was telling me about the stories uh, because she thought that we can together we can bring it uh, more to the public the, the topic of the emotion and the suffering especially through the medium of, of music and um i felt very honored to be given this uh, access to this information and to be able to um, give it a human uh, and actually connection to what we here in the Western world perceive. Because I think we also um, read we read the news and sometimes the news seems to be so much detached from wh what we're experiencing now. But from the, through the stories, um, because Miriam told me also about how it influenced, influenced her life, to be corresponding with the person being in Africa, uh, through the position, through the shaping of this text, I wanted to show how we are all connected and we are all human. Okay, well, let's just hear a little extract from the play. This bit is fairly near the beginning of the play, and it's uh, Lillian, who's a professor at Leiden University, and she's just received a mysterious telephone call at home from a complete stranger, and this person is in a, in a detention camp in Libya, and he's pleading for help. Sorry, Tesfai. On this number, I get someone called Mahawi. Yeah, I buy time from him. This is not my phone. Can you trust him? I don't have an option, Professor Lillian. This is urgent. Our people are suffering and we are running out of time. Whatever you can do, do it quickly. Please, take care with my future. I'm sorry that I've started your morning like this, dear Professor. Did anything result from, from, from this work? I mean, did you follow on or did um, anybody follow on and help this guy or find this guy even? So Miriam was in a, uh, contact with him for uh, about two years and she has helped through her organization to, to, um, to, com to complete his case. So he had to bring his case uh, to the court, um, how to get him out of there. And so she had organized the resources. And however, the pandemic has stopped those efforts. Unfortunately, there was a plane, there was everything arranged for him. And because of the pandemic, he was not able to leave. So he's still in the camp? No, he has escaped uh, somewhere. He's the last message I, I heard of that he's somewhere in Syria. 
it's difficult, isn't it? Because there are thousands, tens of thousands of people like this, and you can't help them all. I mean, all you can do is just help one. Yeah, um, but I think that Miriam, uh, through her organization, is trying to help more than one because uh, also the dialogue, um, uh, this was a very special contact for her also because he has provided a lot of information. Uh, I mean, in this transcript that you you hear, this is a fraction of uh, of that. And of course, I had to really edit the, the information because you can imagine WhatsApp messages, because all WhatsApp messages are quite hectic, are uh, on short, on top of each other. There was lots of emojis, so I had to really dig into it. Um, however, there was also lots of information that uh, Miriam was trying to get from him, specific information on, on the conditions in the camp and on other people in the camp. And so she was able to provide even uh, humanitarian help to others while he was telling about some shortages. So uh, while he was there, she was not helpless. She was even, uh, she even brought this to European Union court that the, the conditions that the European Union thinks that this happening one way, but it was happening another way and so on. So she was still working and she's working, her organization is working all the time. I was given access to this case because this was not a case which is um, a secret at the moment. So I didn't, ha there was no um, conflict of um, somebody's sensitive information because this is an unresolved situation, let's say. Um, but there is hundreds of those cases that she's helping. Uh, so I think that we need to really support this kinds of non-profit uh, organization. That was Polish composer Kasia Gliwiska. We shall be broadcasting her play Lillian on Arts Talk Radio in the not-too-distant future. Well, that's all for this edition. We'll be back soon when we'll have a piece on The Mad King, the new production by Opera Today. I'm Michael Hasted, so until then, it's goodbye. <laughs>